Welcome to season four of The Culture of Kindness. My name is Nahala Summers and I am your host. A culture of kindness is based on the idea that by bringing kindness into leadership, we reduce stress, anxiety, make happier workplaces, and in turn, improve the bottom line for any organization or institution. It is a book, leadership program, accreditation, and of course, this wonderful podcast. Kindness has been my life's work since I founded the social movement for kindness back in 2012 called Sunshine People. And it has kept me interested on what people have to say on the complexities of kindness ever since. The guest lineup is exceptional. From politicians to social media influencers, best-selling authors to BBC presenters, an eclectic mix of people who all have completely different views on kindness, how we get it and where the world is currently at. If you enjoy this episode, then please do show your support for kindness by subscribing to the podcast, leave a five-star review or simply invest in the book, aptly named A Culture of Kindness, available on Amazon. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy. Sam Smith, you are so welcome on A Culture of Kindness podcast. I'm honoured to have you on, really excited to be chatting with you about the top tips on what's going on in FinCap right now. There's a real onus on culture, culture change and changing a different narrative, which we'll get on to in a minute. Um, I guess the first thing is, is just to give a little bit of background about you and but life before FinCap, really, and, and what that looked like. Well, that was a long time ago, so I have to remember, I've basically been at FinCap and what was the previous guys of FinCap, which is part of the bigger business, a division, for 23 years. So almost my entire working career. Before that, I was an accountant at KPMG for three years. And before that, I was at university. So that, that was sort of my... My working career, university, three years at KPMG, then the rest, um, so building FinCap. Had you always, had you always gone like this is what made you go into this kind of finance world? Because you'd obviously said there was no change. It was always kind of I've gone to university, I'm doing this, and this is the road I'm going down. Well, it's, it's quite interesting, actually. When I think back, when I was at university, I did economics with accounting, and I think at school economics was suddenly something I was really really good at and really interested in and why I loved it was it was about um sort of the economics of uh, the psychology of what happens when people do things how does business and the world react when groups of people do things and what's predictable and what's not and I found that absolutely fascinating so when I was at university doing economics that's all I knew that it something about the business part I found really interesting something about people I found really interesting motivating people and the only two career choices I could think of that sort of linked to these two things I was passionate about were either being a primary school teacher which I was really keen to do because I'm and you'll probably see a lot of our work at FinCap now is around education and and kids and and making sure they can be as ambitious as possible it was either that or be an accountant and the only reason I thought of being an accountant 
was because in my head, and I don't, this has been a really big driver for me all the way through, is I want to, as a female, be able to support myself on my own without anybody else for the rest of my life. And, and something, even then at age 21, I was really conscious of I need a career that I can always support myself. And when I was choosing between the two, I thought, you know what, if I become an accountant, if I have a child and I have to support them on my own, what you know, what will earn that money? I can always be a part-time finance director. That'd be a really good job. I could do it while having a family. And that's a really weird thing, I think, and a thought process to think when you're in your very, very early 20s. But that was my driver and I applied to KPMG. And that was that was my only thought process. I mean, that's, it's quite astonishing that you were, and I guess it gives you a summary of who you are, to forward think that far to say, I'm, I'm, I'm managing all my risks. <laughs> yeah, and I don't, I still don't know why that is. Yeah, because it is, you know, it was a, I would have loved to have been a primary school and I love um, you know, working with kids and just, you know, really getting them inspired. And in a way, that's what I love most about my job now is inspiring people, seeing them come on, you know, picking great talent that maybe otherwise wouldn't have had a chance and, and still spotting that potential. I absolutely love, you know, building the teams and seeing them successful. But yeah, this real need to support and have and be all right on my own was yeah. just so overpowering that that you know, that, that has always, I think, been a, a key driver for me, making sure I'm I'm okay on my own, not yeah. reliant on anyone else. Yes. My mother told me when I was very young that um, you never rely on somebody to put food on the table for you. You have to make sure that you can put food on the table for yourself. And I think there was a there's a generational thing. Things happened in certain generations where it kind of drove people to be more independent you know we've changed the dynamics haven't we on um on workplaces really yeah absolutely I think um you know the dynamic of choice I think you know that being female wanting to have as many choices as possible I think you know the the two go in hand in hand earning money having choice you know that's what's my daughter's now seven but I'm still you know, not specifically, but very, very conscious of constantly messaging to her that, you know, that having choice is about, you know, making sure you can support yourself and you can support a family and you don't have to, you know, not make the right choice because of the situation you're in. You you sit as a, a pretty young, in, in comparison, um, kind of in this kind of finance stockbroking firm world um young female chief exec what does that what does that feel like does that feel like you kind of step in as an outsider is it still challenging or is there there change in the industry that you're seeing so I think when I became CEO remember I've been running the division for about 10 years beforehand so that was you know I thought really probably quite stupidly that running the division was very similar to the next day waking up and being the CEO when we completed the buyout in 2007. Mm. And what I realised very quickly, actually, is it's completely different, that suddenly the buck stops with you and only you. And actually, one of the weirdest things was not having 
that friendship relationship as you do with the running the division you know you're much more friendly you you become quite lonely and I found that quite difficult but I was 33 when I first became CEO when that switch from head of a division to you know CEO of the company took place and at that point in time there were no other women in the industry so yeah I was looking at okay what how do I do this job because there is no one who teaches you how to be a CEO there is no book there is you're just learning as you go and you're trying to get as much information from other CEOs as possible as how they do it almost thinking that they're doing it in the right way so I would meet quite a lot of my contemporaries um, see what they were doing you know see how people talked about them and probably quite subconsciously I started to become much more masculine in my approach even from what I'd wear I suddenly realized I was wearing a lot of trouser suits a lot of you know not really wanting to put makeup on becoming a bit less like my authentic self and that was probably two years in that I was and I think someone actually called and said you're a bit scary and I thought oh my god that is so not me I'm not that scary type I, I don't think I am anyway <laughs> Um, maybe, but some people say differently. And I thought, I really don't like that. What has happened? And I think, um, actually, if I'd had other role models at the time, this would have really helped, which is why I'm quite passionate about championing it. But very quickly, I, I really thought, this isn't the way to go. I want to be different. I don't want to do it this way. The whole point of setting up something different was to break the culture down into something I wanted it to be, to not be higher and fire, not have this aggressive, quite testosterone fueled way of working, which a lot of financial services was then. You know, I, I didn't want that to be the place that we were. And actually what I was finding is we were attracting people to the firm, particularly women, quite senior women, because I was the CEO, because we were doing it differently, because we did have very much an ownership you know, an inclusive culture, making people really feel part of the vision, um, owning some equity, you know, really feeling a part of what we were doing. So that was, a, you know, that was a huge part of me sort of getting my own confidence to be my authentic self. I think that took me too long. You know, in, in hindsight, now I think what, what would have changed if the industry was more female focused, I would have been more confident to do it my way early on. But I think it took me that two years of actually, you know, realising the way other people were doing it was just telling me how I didn't want to, rather than thinking I need to go down that path. Yeah. There, there is this um, bad rap of the, the financial industry, whether it's a bank, whether it's stockbroker, you know, anything to do with finance. Um really is has a lot of distrust behind it yeah. in kind of out there in the world um and and what you've said there is really what we wanted to do and what we started to do was but the trend of what was what was seen as normal you know dare I say it very male middle-aged population within finance industry and and with you being young female you were you were seeing change start to happen within your own organization how how have you worked on gaining trust within fincap but i guess then out into the wider world of finance um turning kind of that distrust into 
something where people can trust you? Because that that definitely seems to be the case um, with FinCap. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think when, when we set up, it was very much we want to do something differently about servicing clients. So our whole ethos was that the industry is not trusted from a client perspective. Is there integrity of, of advice? Do clients think you're really best serving them or do you just want a bonus that year? Mm. That's what we were trying to turn on its head at the time, which was, look, we think about long-term relationships. We think about advice that's honest, that's absolutely right for you. And, you know, when you're when you're giving that authentic advice, which isn't always what you're going to make the most money out of, clients do trust you. And that's why they kept coming back. So for 10 years, we've built up this real trust we hadn't marketed at all. Everything was word of mouth, but we were winning clients. So the buyout was really, the USP was almost, you know, we care about you more. Trust us. What we didn't really realise until quite a number of years later was at the very same time, we were also doing that with our team internally. Mm. So this outwardly facing, you know, we're very client-centric. We care about our clients more. We're here for you. You know, just because you're a small growing company doesn't mean you get the the um, you know, weakest team. You know, you're all important to us. That's a real long term relationship thing. We were also fostering this. We care about you, our team more. And that only became apparent probably five or six years later when we sat back and thought, well, we've been the fastest growing broker in the sort of stock market space for five or six years now in a market that had shrunk, almost halved in that period of time, the number of companies on AIM, how are we doing it? And we realised it wasn't just this client focus. It was actually our staff and team focus that was meaning they would you know, give the client service that they wanted, but because they were driven in the right way. So that was a real eye-opener because it was yeah, it's, it was really that thing, which is why I'm so, so passionate about it now. And I think it's fundamental to our historic success and our future success is it, if you care about your team and you value them and you make them feel important and it's a really nice, inclusive, value, valued culture, those team members will do everything they can to make the company grow, to do the right thing, to help their clients, to go above and beyond. So for me, almost, we'd originally come at it from the wrong angle. We were absolutely client-centric, but we were also looking after the team. Really, the USP was, you know, value the team, and then you will get the client results by default. So the fundamental thing we cannot change in our business going forward is the culture that has to remain absolutely there. And then trust in our team is an interesting one because – now, that's to say that your clients are trusting you because it's just daily interactions, how you are. I think clients know very quickly whether you're authentic or not. That just comes across with everybody talking about the same vision and them caring about you. But with the team, it was lots of acts. One, I think being authentic is absolutely crucial that you do what you say and mm. you listen to people and you go back and you don't have to you know, implement everything they talk about, but you share views, you ask for their opinions and then you come back and explain why that might not be the case so the listening sharing your thoughts getting feedback all of that builds trust because they know what you're doing 
they know why you've thought about it. They know they've been included in the decision and they know potentially why you haven't gone with what some of them have said, but you've explained it. But one of the critical points, I remember when it was three years after the buyout. So this was 2010. And in the buyout, we were 50-50 owned by our parent company. So 50% by the team, 50% by the parent company. And we finally got to a point three years after the initial buyout where we could buy back our parent company's 50%. So it's a really exciting time to get full ownership of the company, really go forward on our own as a separate entity. And we were talking about how do we split this 50%? We've got, you know, this, we've got to raise two and a half million pounds, it was, to buy out the 50%. How are we going to do it? And there were lots of conversations about, okay, maybe it should be in proportion to who currently owns it. Um, maybe we should, you know, offer it to everybody. What, you know, what should we do? And I was absolutely convinced, and not, I don't think the majority actually agreed with me here that we should split this absolutely equally. The whole 50% would be offered in equal proportion to everybody. And we would get a bank in one room. I would tell everyone individually what was happening. They had a chance to buy out equally this 50%. We had a bank in another room to see, I don't know their personal finances, whether they could get the funding. So everyone was offered £50,000 of equity at the price at the time. And then we said, okay, if anyone wants to oversubscribe, you can, but you'll only be able to buy those shares if other people don't take up their full entitlement. So for me, you know, I was offered the same as my PA, um, and only if other people didn't take it up was I allowed to take my pro rata share. And what happened within 24 hours is we got all the money, we'd raised all the two and a half billion from the team, and we'd actually, you know, if you looked at the list of the shareholdings of how that 50% broke down afterwards, it was probably exactly as I would have done it pro rata. But it actually, it was it was done in a way that everybody got offered the same amount. So I did keep my 10% stake. I did manage to, you know, buy the equivalent to maintain that stake. So did my chairman. So we obviously put a lot more money in, but we only did it because other people couldn't take their full allocation but that was such a trust building event that everyone in our industry just would not have done that they would have taken most of the management and the staff would have got you know the the scraps Mm -hmm. and because we did that yeah everyone had their chance and I think it it bonded our culture of we are not going to leg you over we are utterly about fairness You might not always agree with us, but we will try and do the right thing every time. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, I've been absolutely focused on, and the team have actually, all the senior team, what is the right thing? What, you know, when COVID hit, what should we do? Who should take pay cuts? You know, the directors should take the most. You know, you're trying to protect the more junior staff. Everything we do, we try and come from the lens of what is fair, what is right, what what will everyone think about it? And I think that is a very different way to do business, yeah. particularly in our sector, but not just in our sector. I think more broadly, are people doing the right thing? Mm. And I'm not sure that's always the case. No, no, absolutely not. It's interesting because I worked with uh, an insurance firm last year. It's obviously very KPIs on finance and such like. And 
it became evident to me from a number of different interviews that I had done with people, somebody within HSBC who had worked within HSBC, that the brutality of the finance world, this kind of dog eat dog. Um, but there, and, and it was interesting because you responded to the book, A Culture of Kindness, with great interest and said, oh, this, and you were the only one out of a number of finance organizations that I sent that book out to. Do you think it's a long way away, the industry, from having a change that they understand that they need to build this kind of level of trust, that they need to have this, you know, when I talk about kindness, I talk about kind of trust, integrity, um, time and listening and, you know, all of those things really that you've spoken about. Do you think they're a long way from that at the moment? I still do, unfortunately. I mean, I, th I think a lot is changing and I think a lot is getting better. So I wouldn't, you know, say we haven't moved on quite a bit because some of the practices were obviously terrible. But in in lots of ways, we haven't because I think that some things are sticking plasters to the problem of, OK, how do we introduce this? How do we encourage diversity? How do we you know, think about this problem? And some of it is almost in a, you know, PR way, like how, you know, how can we show we're doing this, but not coming from a we really want to do this because mm -hmm. it's important. And that that does bother me, because if you're if you're putting in processes and changes to working practices and that's that's all positive but I liken it to someone who says right okay you, you come back from maternity leave someone says you can do part-time great that's the policy but if the culture is you are ridiculed every day for doing that if you're going home at five o'clock because you need to go and see your kids and people are you know taking the mick and you don't feel valued what was the point of that process? That is about culture. And that does happen all the time in our industry. Yeah. Maybe it's changing a little bit, but I think it's got a bit box ticking and a bit paying lip service to what we're trying to achieve and not the broader, how can we think about culture? Why do we actually want to do this? Why do we want to promote this inclusive culture that people want to be part of? And that can only come from the top. That is, you know, because you have to want it. You, you have to believe in it. It's not for everybody. Not, not everybody in your organisation will think it's right because they're still quite focused on the bottom line. Um, so some decisions are quite hard. But if you absolutely ruthlessly focus on your culture and doing the right thing and you recruit people who are like-minded, it happens. It happens naturally. Yeah. which is why I think we have good diversity stats, never because we've measured it, but because it is inclusive. So I think the focus on culture within organisations, particularly in finance, really needs to be thought through. And I personally believe that can only come from the chief exec. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, you're right. I mean, we saw this kind of influx of mental health first aiders and, and many organisations, and, and I'm not dissing those roles at all, but... I think there was organisations that went, oh, I've ticked that box. We've got we've got some mental health first aiders in place, and that means that we've we've now dealt with the with the stress within the organisation. Done, ticked, and yeah. so you kind of see that within organisations. 
you you must have had high levels of stress you know when buyout happened so you know every day uh, there must be stressful situations how do you tackle that personally but how have you and and you know uh, with covid as well how have you driven that within your culture to to tackle the increased stress um <laughs> I mean, it's, we haven't got the answer yet. I think it has got worse and worse and worse. I think one of the key challenges for us this year with COVID is how has it impacted people on a personal level? We've seen a lot of challenges from a mental health perspective, um, from a resilience perspective. You know, people haven't got the same way as, of bouncing back when difficult things happen that they did before. So we are working on a lot of things around supporting people, coaching, you know, listening more, giving people a break a bit more. That you know, There are lots of things within that that involve looking after the people we have in the organisation and it has to be tailored to them and it has to be done from multiple people. So it's people noticing, are they okay? Asking the questions, having quality conversations with people not about how you're doing in your appraisal, but, you know, how are you? What's going on? And we're doing a lot of work on coaching the managers within the team, um, coaching everybody, really. We have a lot of different coaches for different people who are just helping people navigate through their career journey, deal with the stresses, and, and really sort of have that sounding board that maybe you don't want to talk to your boss about something maybe something's bothering you and you want to talk to someone else. So I've I've been a really big um, ab- advocate of coaching myself. I've used it. I think it's great. I still do it. So we've tried to introduce that down the line. Um, other things, yeah, it, it is very hard. I think the stress is at a level we haven't seen before. I think the only way really you can control it, from my point of view as a CEO, is to talk to people, to have a right forum of similar people at similar levels, to share those experiences, um, have a support network around you, but also to make sure you're taking the regular breaks that you need, which is much more often, I think, than some people think they should be. I try and take, you know, if I've had a really, really difficult two weeks, I'll try and have a day just for me to think and recover. So I think this whole you've got to keep working, keep going attitude is very, very unhelpful to stress management. And even more unhelpful in this current sort of COVID time when things are really, really tough. And you've seen it even in the last two weeks. Now we've got restrictions again, how people have gone down a rabbit hole of feeling quite anxious very, very quickly. Almost after a day, we'd notice fraughtness, difficulties, arguments, you know, stress. It, it was all back within a day. Yeah. So it just shows the responsibility you've got as an employer to look after people in the longer term, because this can take a long time to unwind, I think. Yeah, it's really wonderful for you to hear that, to, to kind of, and I wrote about it in the book, but having an understanding of the whole person, like considering all of the things, you know, and I do the workshops with people, one of the things that often will come out as being something that affects productivity is not necessarily something that's happening within work, but it's all the things that are happening around them. 
So things yeah. that are happening from home, you know, now COVID um, and all of the things that are happening within government can be bad coffee from the coffee machine, you know, yeah. um, and those things. It, it's the whole person, isn't it? And I, I definitely feel from you and, and, you know, reading about FinCap and, and what you guys do, that that seems to be the culture, this kind of inclusivity looking at the whole person as much as possible we we don't get it right but it's all about intention isn't it it's about our true intentions if if you were yeah to... and also holding your hands up and say you know something you will get it wrong you can't yeah be perfect all the time but if if you have the dialogue you can try and improve you can say sorry you can yeah. make amends you know everybody's human business isn't you know you are going to get it wrong but that's okay you are just trying to build a relationship with your team. And if you care, it's like all your relationships in life. If you care about someone, you get through it, you get stronger out the other side. But I think you have to start treating your employee-employer relationships more like that yeah. than, you know, the the one that we've probably been quite functional about in the past. If you were to summarise the culture within FinCap, kind of, and I mean, I guess we've talked about inclusivity um, and to encourage that. What what would you summarise the culture as just the things that you do, you know, what it's like there? So the, the biggest thing, you know, we'd have a strap line is doing the right thing. So out of everything, say we do the right thing and you can't really go far wrong. You know, there are things that are more wrapped up in that. So our, our values are all about being collegiate, being dynamic, very responsive to your client, but you know, always, always or always switched on. And then smart thinking is about just just thinking outside the box, bit of a growth mindset, being entrepreneurial, having the freedom to sort of think and move in a direction and not be too tied to our specific processes. So that those three things, if you look at people who are the team players, they're very dynamic, very sort of switched on and, and driven, and they're smart thinking, you you find the right characteristics. But that is all with the overarching. Do they care about their team? Do they care about their client? Would they do the right thing? And that that is the most important hurdle that we're looking for. So you you see that in the questions you can ask just you know almost how people come across and when you find you have a group of people who are all trying to do the right thing you create a really exciting energy that is you know people have got your back there's not this backstabbing there's not this right that's my client right that's you know right you've got a high bonus you actually create a place where people want to turn up yeah. in the day and that as life and work becomes more and more I'm confused I personally believe that's you know that is the direction of travel but I think it's really important that you love what you do mm. and you turn and you like the people you work with and you want to go out for a drink with any of them yeah ev- everyone is a nice but everyone gets on we don't have any marmite people you know some that some people love and some people hate them we don't you know we wouldn't hire someone like that because that would make the culture difficult we have just very likable nice people who people trust how do you how do you work with this idea of financial growth and doing the right thing because 
sometimes there must be times that people are like, actually, this is at odds with each other. Yeah. Uh, I need to do the right thing, but I need to make money and the two aren't working together right now. See, I can't think of an occasion, and I'm trying to wrap my brain, where it has been a problem. And that may some, say something about us as a business, but I generally think, you know, what's right for our team, it it is always right for the shareholders in the bottom line, certainly in the longer term. Maybe it's not in that period of six months, but certainly a year later. It's, it's never been anything which I think, oh, my God, we did that, but that massively impacted profit and that didn't come back to help us later not really anything I mean the small things you could say about when people leave you know are you aggressive about when they leave or do you try and be fair and and pay them properly would that have got you a bit more money on the bottom line if you hadn't paid them properly been aggressive or would that maybe have led to a court case where you might have spent more in time and money so I think the calls are very, very marginal. And I, I personally believe you, it always comes back to you, whatever you do, you know, if, if you are behaving in a way that is is right and is kind and you care about people, that will always come back somehow. And for us, it has always come back fairly quickly. Mm. So I, I haven't actually, I can't think of a time I really had to think, oh, my God, that is a, you know, that's really going to deplete our profit, but we should do it. You know, repaying furlough, we repaid furlough. Well, did that hit our bottom line? Yes. Did we have our best year ever in that year? Yes. (laughs) Were the two related? You've got to think at some point, yes. So could someone have said, well, you shouldn't have done that because you would have made another, you know, couple of hundred thousand pounds profit. Well, would we have done because would we have, would other things have happened so so not really is my answer I think if you come at it from perspective of doing the right thing it all it all seems to come out in the wash somehow yeah once Sam we've actually come to the end of the podcast I think there's been so many takeaways I always ask the same question at the end of every podcast and that is what does a culture of kindness mean to you when you think about it I think it means having respect for people, really valuing their contribution and valuing what they do for your business. It is a team game. Business is absolutely about a team game. And without kindness you know, and respect, how can you have a productive, happy team? I don't see that you can. So it's, it's not a weak thing. It's an absolutely positive, strong and, and really important thing to create great businesses. Thank you so much for your time, Sam, and what you're doing is a role model for everybody going into the future, for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you have loved this episode, please do share it with others. Pop on and give a lovely review, but mostly take forwards into your life something that can change someone else's. We are looking for the elusive happiness and kindness is the action that can get us there.